This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. This is a VHS tape. First available in the U.S. in 1977, the home video market was eventually dominated by this state-of-the-art marvel of modern technology. At one point, some estimate that nearly 90% of all American homes had a VCR able to play back these videotapes. A record 32 million VHS copies of the Lion King movie were sold in 1995, and video rental stores stocked thousands of these video cassettes. There were video rental shops seemingly on every corner in America. Americans filled their bookshelves and their basements with VHS tapes. And by 2006, 30 years after they were first introduced, movie studios stopped making VHS tapes. By 2016, no one manufactured VCRs anymore. At one point, available everywhere, cutting-edge technology, the VHS tape became obsolete. No longer state-of-the-art, but instead out-of-date. It was replaced by something better. The DVD, which was smaller, higher quality, digital, and maybe best of all, a DVD never needed rewinding. The DVD quickly became the format of choice for consumers, and from 1996 until 2005, the DVD experienced explosive growth. But since then, it too has experienced a significant decline. Sales dropped 86% from 2005 to 2018 as consumers' preferences shifted once again. This time from physical media, VHS cassette tape or a DVD disc to home streaming and digital files they could get off the internet. And if it hasn't happened already, DVD will become, at some point soon, obsolete. It happens everywhere. Clothing styles, home decorating, fads and fashions, appliances, cars, cell phones. Something better comes along and makes the old thing obsolete. So glad you're with us for Calvary Online. Today, our series, Greater Than, as we study the book of Hebrews together, continues in chapter 7. Grab your Bible and turn with me there. The point of Hebrews chapter 7 is that the Old Testament system of priests is obsolete because of Jesus. He's better. He's superior to them. And he will never become obsolete. Now, the way that argument unfolds is by looking backwards to one particular Old Testament figure named Melchizedek and then by looking forward to today. It's going to take us a little while as we look backwards to get to how this chapter has relevance for us today, but I promise it does. So stick with me. Let's begin in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. The author of Hebrews uses two Old Testament references, one from Genesis, one from Psalms, that both talk about this kind of mysterious figure named Melchizedek. 
It's not the first time we've heard about him in our study in Hebrews. He's been brought up a couple times, but chapter 7 is the most extensive explanation of who he is and why he is important to you and to me today. All right, you ready to go backwards? Flip all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 14. That's where we meet Melchizedek. Now, if you were with us last time, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Abraham, the other Old Testament figure that was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7. If you need a refresher or a reminder of who Abraham is, click this link to watch a brief summary of his life. We're first introduced to Abraham, then called Abram in Genesis chapter 12. God calls him to leave the land of his fathers and to go to a new land that God will show him and give to him. And you'll remember that God made a covenant or a promise with Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will give to you a great name. And through you, Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. When Abram left the land of his fathers to go where God had called him to go, he took his nephew, whose name is Lot, with him. They traveled together, and then they each end up going their own way to separate regions. Lot ends up in settling in a region that's called Sodom. At one point, a war broke out between several kings in that region, and Lot was kidnapped. Abram, who learned of his capture, took hundreds of his servants and went to help Lot. They rescued him and all the things that had been stolen and plundered and returned it to the rightful kings. And then, in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14, we read that after his return, Abram's return, from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We've mentioned a few times that the book of Hebrews was probably delivered to its first century audience as a letter but it may be best thought of as a sermon because of its structure. It goes back and forth between explanation or what we might call exposition of Old Testament verses and encouragements or exhortations to follow Jesus, to not drift. Hebrews 7 is an exposition of this Old Testament section of Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. This encounter between Melchizedek and Abram. Our author is simply teaching the Bible to the first century audience who were Christians, but before they became followers of Jesus had been Jews. And back in Hebrews 7, he explains this Old Testament reference. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is, this is Melchizedek, first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. First, our author says, as he explains this Old Testament story of Abraham and Melchizedek, 
he says that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness by translation of his name. That's what his name means in Hebrew, king and righteous. So he is the king of righteousness. But he is also the king of Salem because of the place where he lived, which our author says means king of peace. Salem is similar to the Hebrew word for peace, which you may have heard, shalom. And it's likely that Salem becomes the region that once was known as Salem becomes the city of Jerusalem. And so Melchizedek, because of his name and because of the authority he had over a place, is called the king of righteousness, and the king of peace. And then it says that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy. If you've read the Old Testament, you know how important genealogies are. Maybe you've gotten bogged down in First Chronicles reading so-and-so had so-and-so who had so-and-so who had so-and-so. And you wonder, why are these names here? Why are they important? They are so important to the Old Testament history. We can trace the history of Israel. We can trace the important Old Testament and New Testament characters back all the way to Adam, to Abraham, to his descendants, to King David. All of the important people in the history of God's unfolding plan to redeem a people for himself are mentioned in these Old Testament genealogies. And so it's noteworthy that Melchizedek is not listed in any Old Testament genealogy. All of the important Old Testament figures are listed there. We know exactly who their father is, who their mother is, where they were born, and where they fall in the structure and history of the people of God, but not Melchizedek. No mention of who he descended from, where he came from, or who he's related to. And so, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, I don't think that means he didn't have a mom or a dad. I think he did. I think Melchizedek was a human. But in the sovereignty of God, Melchizedek's family of origin and genealogy is left out of Scripture so that he would appear to have, our author says, neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, once again, I think Melchizedek was born and that Melchizedek died. But because of what is left out of Scripture, his birth and his death, his mother and his father, his name and a list of genealogies, our author says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. That's why Melchizedek is in Genesis 14, to point to, to resemble, to show us a shadow of what's to come, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our king of righteousness, our king of peace, who has no beginning and no end. And so Melchizedek resembles Jesus. And Melchizedek continues as a priest forever. Now we saw in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was priest of God Most High, it said. And a few times in Hebrews, our author has referred to Jesus as our great high priest. And chapter 7 begins four chapters worth of explanation about how Jesus is our high priest, how he steps into a role that was previously occupied by this Old Testament sacrificial system, and how he is better, greater, more superior to the high priests that have come before him. It's the great theme of the book of Hebrews. But there's a problem. The whole argument that Jesus is a great high priest in the book of Hebrews, doesn't fit into the Old Testament structure of who could serve 
as a priest. So you've got Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people. His son is Isaac and his grandson is Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel and then Israel has 12 sons. One of them is named Levi. And God commanded that the men who served as priests must be descended from the family of Levi. He must be their ancestor in order for them to be qualified to serve as a priest. That's why it's called the Levitical priesthood. And further, the only men who were qualified to be high priests, which was, which was another level of the priesthood, had to be descended from Aaron, who was a descendant of Levi. So, it's a problem because Jesus wasn't a descendant of Levi. He was a descendant of Levi's brother, Judah. And Judah's descendants weren't qualified to be priests, and certainly not the high priest. And that absolutely would have been a big question in the minds of first century Christians who had a background in Judaism. And can you, can you imagine the pressure they must have faced from their friends and family who were still practicing Jews when they would tell them about Jesus and say he is the new great high priest? And they would say, but we all know that Jesus of Nazareth was de descended from Judah, not from Levi. It's not possible for him to be a high priest. So how can he be? Because God has made provision for this through the man, Melchizedek. Before Levi was even born, Melchizedek is on the scene as a priest of God Most High. Established before Levi is even born, hundreds of years before Aaron becomes the first high priest. Melchizedek is the first priest who's named in the Bible. And our author says... Melchizedek continues as a priest forever. Now, look at Psalm 110 and verse 4 with me, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament of the Bible. Jesus quotes it and applies it to himself. Peter and Paul, early apostles and leaders in the early church, make use of it to describe Jesus. It's quoted 12 times in the book of Hebrews. It's a messianic psalm written by King David that points to Jesus. First, it declares Jesus as king. In verse 1, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. King David affirms Jesus as God in this verse and enthrones him as king and as priest. Here in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, he's speaking of Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. Just as Melchizedek was king of righteousness, king of peace, and priest of God Most High, so too is Jesus. And God makes an oath that Jesus is a priest forever, and thereby making the Old Testament Levitical priesthood obsolete. Now, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 7, Verses 4 through 21 of Hebrews 7 cover this all in more detail. 
You might want to just pause this video right now and just read the first 21 verses of chapter 7, which are pretty straightforward, especially with all this background we've just walked through. And then you'll see how the author builds his argument to verse 22, which says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The old covenant is now obsolete. The Old Testament system of priests and sacrifice is unnecessary because of Jesus. He is superior to it. He is better. Verses 23 and 24 say the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's made the old system obsolete. Now, I promised you earlier. We'd have to spend some time looking backwards in order to be able to look forwards. So why does this matter to us today? 4,000 years after this encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek, 2,000 years since the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and priests and high priests stopped ministering, we'll look closely at verse 25 of chapter 7, which says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, because of all of this that happened thousands and thousands of years ago, Jesus can do two things for you today. First, Jesus is able to save you. Every human everywhere for all time is at one point separated from God. And without Jesus, we are destined to be separated from God forever and ever. But Jesus is able to save us from that. Why? Verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus offered up himself in your place. He died for you, once and for all, so that you could be saved, no longer separated from God, but eternally secure, I mean, notice in verse 25 that he is able to save to the uttermost, totally, completely, securely. So what must you do to be saved? It tells us clearly in verse 25. Draw near to God through Jesus. That's the only way. If you've never drawn near to God or if you feel distant from him, today is the day to draw near. Tell him that you need saving and that you believe that Jesus is the way to be saved. We'd love to talk with you if you have questions about this or if you'd like to know more about how you can draw near to God through Jesus. But you don't need us. You can tell Jesus yourself. You can approach God confidently because of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he promises to you if you ask for his help. And you can do it right now. Wherever you are, speak to God directly. Ask Jesus to be your Savior, and you will experience grace and mercy from Him. He promises you that. And if you do that, if you trust Jesus for salvation, 
then here's the second thing that Jesus does for you today and will do for you for the rest of your life. He lives to pray for you. That's what he's doing right now in heaven. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, praying for his people. That's what the word intercession means in verse 25. He stands between us and God as our great high priest and prays for us, intercedes for us on our behalf. He lives to do it. He did it on the earth and he continues to do it today in heaven because God raised him from the dead. You might remember the night that Jesus was betrayed by his friend Peter. Jesus predicted the betrayal, and before it happened, he said to Peter in Luke 22, verse 32, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Right before the biggest failure of Peter's life, Jesus prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail, that he would turn back to Jesus and that Peter then would strengthen the rest of his followers. And Jesus prays for you. What problems do you face? What needs do you have? What failures might be in front of you today? Jesus died to save you and he lives to pray for you. Jesus will never become obsolete, never replaced by a better model, He will never get outdated. He lives forever. My friends, there is no one greater than our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we give glory and honor to you because of who you are. Our king of righteousness, our king of peace, our priest who stands between us and God, interceding on our behalf, praying for us, able to save us to the uttermost. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you have done. And I pray for my friends as they listen today that they would cling to you, that they would draw near to God through Jesus, that they would ask for the help of God, for the power of Jesus, and that you would be faithful as you you promise to be. We pray in your powerful and beautiful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.